These are the words purportedly, or we should say in theory, Moses gave, right, uh, to the children of Israel before they crossed over. Uh, and yet it is deuteronomus. What is in Greek deuteronomus mean? Nomus is law. Deutero is not one, but two. This is an entirely new law. This is an entirely new chapter. This is a 2.0 for the Israelites. I want us to look at this Parsha, just the first paragraph of what uh, Moses is talking about, but what I think Josiah and our scholars tell us were in maybe the 7th century before the Common Era. This is Josiah's reform in Jerusalem. So while Moses is talking about the children of Israel before they cross over, the D, the Deuteronomist, is talking about the 7th century before the Common Era. Israelites are living within the land, and it's a total reconfiguration of what religious life is like. Uh, the third section that I want you to consider. So first, Moses in the context of the children of Israel before they cross over. Moses' final speech, his rhetorical elegance. Second, Josiah in a total reconfiguration of what it means to be an Israelite within the 7th century before the Common Era. And then third, us, Reconstructionist Jews living in the 21st century of cell phones and absolute autonomy of religious experience going through another radical change within religion. And I'd like to approach two subjects within Deuteronomy. I'm just giving you the overall. We're going to begin with the rhetorical nature of the Deuteronomy and this uh, powerful speech. Uh, and then we're going to look at both uh, tattooing vis-a-vis uh, -vis death and uh, the ritual of boiling a calf in its mother's milk, which here in, in Deuteronomy is translated into kashrut, but I'm going to suggest uh, not just myself, but a different reading of what that ritual was. And then we'll look at our eating habits vis-a-vis -vis our 21st century Judaism, kashrut, and what that can mean. Is that clear? We're going to go to the beginning, so let us begin chapter 11, verse 26. We can just say good luck. That's why I said good luck. Thank you. Thank you. I hope so. Look, see, visualize. I have set before you blessing and curse. Now I want... There are a few of these copies. I'm passing them around now. This is what I'm about to describe in topography, meaning this is what it looks like for what Moses is describing. One more sheet here. Would you repeat this, the uh, place in the Torah? Chapter 11, verse 26. Oh. I'm going to read a little of the Hebrew to just give you the sense of its clarity. <laughs> It's so different than Exodus and Parshat Mishpatim uh, that is jarring, technical language. Good morning, Shabbat Shalom. Re'e anochi noten lifnechem ayom bracha uklala. Et abracha asher tishmo'u mitzvot Adonai Eloechem asher anochi metzave etchem hayom. 
I set before you blessing and curse. Blessing if you tishmeu, obey, listen et hamitzvot Adonai. So the first thing that you see, look, is looking, seeing. Is looking actually seeing? Or is looking, obeying mitzvot? Not a rhetorical question. I'm asking you. Look. He's asking you to look. Moses is saying, look. It's both. It's both. But what are you seeing? I'm, I'm going to push you on that, Judith. So what do you see? You're seeing the choices. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're looking at what is, and you're seeing the choices that you can make with what is. So, but is seeing choices literally seeing? No, it's thinking. Good. Seeing is not seeing. That's what I wanted to say. Feeling also. Feeling, understanding, there is listening, hearing is understanding, but it is not seeing. Why am I saying this vis-a-vis? Idolatry. What is idolatry? Hi, welcome. Weather's warm. What is idolatry? Worshipping false idols. Idols and what are idols? Other visual objects. Visual objects. Look, you can't see me. Look, I'm asking you to do things. Look, it's not hard. By the way, it's hard. Look, all you have to do is put this mezuzah on your car and you'll never get into an accident. Idolatry. All right? This is what the radical reconfiguration, I want you to just consider, the more Moses talks about others, the idolatrous, other people, other nations, it's not just two, it's us. Right. You know, there are some kids, I say to my son, there are some kids at school who think they can just get A's when not doing their homework, and then they play video games all day. Those children, you're not like those kids, I say to my son playing video games, streaming YouTube. Look, it's not difficult. It's really difficult. That's what this language is saying. When your God brings you to possess this land you're about to enter, you shall pronounce blessing at Mount Gerizim and curse at Mount Ebal, both on the other side of the Jordan, beyond the west road. No, I can't translate it like that. What is Shemesh? Sun. And what is Mavo Hashemesh? The coming of the sun. Literally, it's Sunset Boulevard. I just wanted you to see that. Isn't that awesome? Verse 3. Derech Mavo Hashemesh. I think we should call it Sunset Boulevard. Derech, the coming of the sun. Sunset. That's what Mavo Hashemesh is. The Canaanites who dwell in this Areva near Gilgal by the terebinths of Moreh. What Moses is setting up is that there are Canaanites in the land. You're not in there yet. And so when you get in there, you're going to have to destroy these things. What I think Josiah is most concerned with, and forgive me, I'm going to take this map. Josiah is concerned that Abraham, in the time of the early Israelites, before Jerusalem was the center uh, sacrificial place, people worshipped all over. 
It was a decentralized sacrificial worship. Welcome, welcome. And so I want you to look at this map. Here you have Mount Agirizim and Mount Ebal. So now I'm going to ask you to turn the page, chapter 12. You shall pronounce the blessing at Mount Gerizim and the curse at Mount Ebal. This is verse 29. Okay, does anybody know? I know Lisa knows how to read a topographic map. What are all these little lines here? What does that suggest in a topographic? Of height. Elevation. Elevation. These are two huge mountains. And what's in the middle? You can see right here, Shechem. Shechem is in the middle of these two huge mountains, Gerizim and Ebal. What was happening at Shechem during the time of Josiah before Jerusalem was the central place of worship? What were they doing? And what did it mean to worship in Israelite times? Sacrificing. And what do we sacrifice? Meat. Meat, meat, meat. I just want to be very clear here. This is genius. This is what we've done from all times, and this is what you must do, is have half the tribe standing on top of one mountain, half the tribe standing on top of other mountain, and shout blessings and curses against one another. It's really profound. If anybody's been to Masada, you can shout out against some of these wadis. Has anybody ever done this? Whistle. Uh, echo. Not echo. Oh, you whistled. It was really good. Uh, unfortunately, I took 15-year-olds there. You could only imagine the things that they were shouting. <laughs> so I was like, it's okay. They cursed at Mount Ebal. They were also doing some of that. But here's what I want to see is genius of both Moses, but really Josiah and our Torah. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to stand half the tribes here and half the tribes there, shouting out at each other. What's at the base of the mountain? Shechem. So what they have done is inverted the ritual into uh, not a visual, an auditory experience of shouting back and forth, and that's what the people are supposed to do. What has been totally eliminated from this ritual Shechem, a ritual sacrifice place at the bottom of, in between those two mountains. It's kind of like if you went vegan and you prepared an entire vegan feast for your kid on the night you used to go to Fat Burger. You've totally reconfigured. You say, that's what we always do. It's Thursday night, gluten-free night. And the kid is like, oh no, but I used to have a double chili cheese king burger. Not anymore. Because what... I would suggest Josiah is doing in the words of Moses is totally reconfiguring a centralized worship a worship based on life priesthood but also giving the capacity for the people of Israel to choose differently and not to worship smaller idols in smaller places the problem Josiah had was that the decentralized worship system was becoming idolatrous the northern kings of Israel, Shechem, we know this. We have evidence of the stele, of the necromancy, which means worshiping the dead, of uh, worshiping ancestors, of small idols. So I'm just trying to be as clear as possible. This was not about the Canaanites or the Ugarites, Ugaritic, uh, you know, Hachiti, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, Yevusi, the Girgashites. It's about Israelites having a number of different 
kind of operations of what their faith was. Authentically so. What is the terebinth of Moray? Elone Moray? Does anybody know back in Genesis where is the first place Abraham saw God? Under this tree. It was nature worship. And what is a Moray? What is a Mora or a Moray in Hebrew? Teacher. Teacher. Oracles were happening here. Okay? This used to be Israelites faith, or one of many, as uh, my scholar and uh, dear, dear mentor, Zioni Zevit, he wrote the Israelite religions of the Bible, because there were many. This is a centralization. Right? I mean, there's nothing to comment on. I'm trying to be as explicit as possible here in this first paragraph. And this is what I have set at Hamishpatim, Asher, Anochi, I have given before you. So now what I want to just really try to be as clear as possible, what Moses is speaking about is a centralized worship system, one that is focused on life and health, one that is in reverence of our ancestors, but not in uh, devotion to them. And it is one that is not a visual experience of ritual, but it is one of a doing, of an understanding, and one that is not self-mortification of cutting or uh, of, uh, of literally a death cult. So now let me give you two examples of that. And I'm sorry, forgive me, I know this reading is small, but I just wanted you to have it. So now we are going to move forward. That was the setup. Okay? Excuse me. Please. Micah? Yes. Something you said that seems so simple, I think is very profound, talking about the Israelite religions, because I think the common concept is that Judaism emerged whole at one point, and that it had never gone through all of these steps of different religions, different kinds of worship. We start with the, the premise that Judaism is this old, however many years we, we say. Yes. And, and it really isn't. I mean, it, it kind of came together, filtered into one thing after a long, long time. You could say it about all. All uh, religions, yes. All people. Is but, it... There's a conservative way of looking at the world, which is there is an originalist kind of moment. And I could say that the Moses in Sinai was that moment, but God spoke in 70 languages in that moment. It wasn't clear. And in fact, we have to kind of undo some of the layerings, and it's profound. What's for me, even deeper is that Deuteronomy, through the voice of Moses, gives you a clarity and a purpose and a theology that seems consummate with both Exodus and Genesis and my God. And so, too, I want to move forward when we talk about both death ritual and our diet that feels absolutely consummate with my God, with my tradition. And it may not look like thou shalt get your butcher from a kosher butcher. And if the kosher butcher tells you this cut of meat and not that cut of meat, you listen. I don't think we have that ritual here in this community. When someone says this is how it's always been, we know to really, and, and to both trust 
that Moses' voice is Moses' voice. This is the voice of Torah. But it is a radical reconfiguration. Did this ritual happen of six tribes and six tribes, blessing and cursing one another? Something of the sort. But I think that's a misdirection from what used to go on, which was small communities would come and sacrifice their own ritual meat. How else would people eat meat? It was legislated by the temple. And so this was where they would bring their meat or more appropriately bring their money and would go to this franchising. Josiah was like, enough of this. I can't control this. And therefore he by allowing people to eat meat outside of the sacrificial system and giving us a system of eating meat, of when you should and when you shouldn't, he allowed the temple to have its own ritual. This is also a development of agriculture. We're talking about 7th century before the Common Era, shepherding, herds, more people were able to eat meat. So you couldn't stop them from doing that. Just as I don't think it's possible now for me to say, all of you must, here is the organic and kosher chicken that I recommend. It is Marin Sun Farms and organically raised, and also the rabbi has blessed it. It's $17 for a leg. Everybody must eat this. So we have to come up with new ways like vegetarian potlucks and the ability to uh, bring uh, holiness into our tables and into our lives. So to to continue with this, I want to go to the death ritual. Please, any other comments? Yes, David. The the, the world of cursing um, is either universal or certainly ramifications all around cultures. And the old Irish bar Mm-hmm. went through a process of cursing lasting several days and following ritual um, ritual guidelines and in fact some of the most complicated interesting Irish poetry is curse poetry absolutely <laughs> if you can break someone down better I will take a good curse over a fluffy uh, uh Panegyric, a, a praise, any day. I wonder how seriously they felt cursed. I mean, maybe there's a, the delight in the complexity of the art form. The challenge. The challenge of the art form. Uh, that it transcends the, the hostility that we normally associate with cursing. In two weeks, when we get to Kitete, uh, you will see that the blessings are about this, and the curses are three times as long. <laughs> I don't see it as quantitative. And if we, we've talked about this in Torah before, is that the cursing, in fact, is a self-inflicted psychodynamic more than, may your head be, you know the Yiddish, may your head be like an onion to grow into the ground. Uh, you know, Jews are, pretty, Jews are pretty good at these curses too. But uh, I think what Moses was trying to set up visually and back to these words, which is, it is so simple. I present to you today right and wrong. Choose right. What is underneath that? Uh, Durkheim's law. Anytime a law says something simply, you know there's a complexity that's the opposite, which is this is a dynamic faith and tradition that is still coming into its own, and I would argue we are still coming into our own, and that we are trying to present something that is a direct link and a chain 
that is very different. So these curses, if you notice, we don't have the explicit. A little later on it says, Cursed be you coming and cursed be your going. And then the other side says, Amen. Blessed be your coming and your going. And they say, Amen. They, they're, they're balanced. But underneath these curses, the klala, uh, Abarvanel says a klala, I believe, is kal, light, something without weight. What you're saying is sometimes these have tremendous power and poetry, and we almost enjoy them. Uh, think about, yeah? This is kind of like a modern-day rap It is performative, but if if you hear this reading, um, well, those can get, yeah. If you watch Eight Mile, these are pretty, these are pretty intense. Eminem has this incredible back and forth. Um, but I want to move now back to life because I think Moses is really clear about what our tradition is about, and it's about life. Not eating blood because blood, the death cult, as we said, David, your blood cries out to me. This is not our people. Spill it like water. Do not be consumed with these rituals of blood. Even though the priesthood is focused on it, it's in this very sacred and I would say sanguine uh, environment, sorry, bad pun, in order for us to live our lives and I'm using current terminology, but organically, holistically, in health, and so that I am not. I mean, look, I could tell you a thousand reasons why a Carl's Bacon Double Cheeseburger is really uh, the anathema of kashrut, in part because it has misogyny all over it as the bikini-clad woman is on top of her, you know. It is all that we are not about. And I won't say, oh, well, that bacon is because of this and trigonosis. We're missing the point. So, and I want to say clearly here, when it says you must destroy all of their idols and the like, I'm not saying that I have to be... Do you remember Jose Bove in France when he smashed through a McDonald's because the farmer in France, he, he drove his tractor through a McDonald's because he thought there was an anathema to its French agricultural way? This is why I think when it says you must destroy those places, what it's really saying is check yourself. What's in your kid's bag? I, I'm sorry, I'm, you know, it's first week of school. And you know what? I, I regret not doing, we have a, a, um, a composting program here where we bring composting to spy. And I really, I'm really trying my kids. I can't get my head around all the composting. But I will tell you that I'm using my, these sandwich bags. My mom was a genius of the Ziploc. She had every shape and size. And somehow my lunch came perfectly. It's too much. I can't look at plastiki anymore and say that I have no relationship to this. This is why I, I really, I want to have a conversation about this. I'm, look, we're only uh, 20 minutes in, but I really want to talk about our life and customs. Because I do think that Moses and Deuteronomy speaks directly to this. We live in life. Even our death ritual is about life. So, I'd like... Uh, to go to here, holiness and mourning, verse 1 and 2. So here we are, chapter 14, uh, page 1125, chapter 14. 
You are children of God. Chapter 14. This is a powerful statement. I mean, we can read it and like, yes, I know, we're all kids of the Lord. When you're grieving in this cultic way, how do you feel when your parent dies? Alone, orphaned. Banimatem la Echem is saying, you're not orphaned. You must, or please, God is begging. See yourself as a child of Adonai, and therefore, when a parent dies, they are returning to the source of life, and so shall you. This is not a moment of self-mortification. It is a moment of deep re, uh, kin, uh, reconnecting, rethatching our souls to the soul of the beyond. This is what we pray in al Rachamim, the God filled with mercy. That that soul is fused with the gift of life. That we focus on life. Lo tit godidu lo tasimu korcha bein einechem lamait. Okay, very important line, word by word. Do not cut yourself. Korcha is carve. Uh, it's a shave, but it's cut your heads, the front of your heads because of the dead. Now I'm going to read the Hebrew. Bein einechem la mate. Bein einechem. What does that mean? Between your eyes. So notice, this is the irony of Re'eh. Look, you're grieving. What are you supposed to do? Don't make it visual. Don't externalize on your body your grief, which was absolutely a custom of Canaanites. This was a cultic ritual. That is, in moments of death, you would carve in the sense of you're lost your parents. So your parent is between your eyes. This has been translated into tattoos. Now you tear the fabric. We're going to get there. So why yeah. why tearing fabric? It's a tear in your, your lifeline. It's a tear in your lifeline. But why do we tear clothing? Often people use a sacred uh, a, a scarf or something that's close to them. It used to be when my Zaid, it was a tie. You would you would cut the tie, a pressure. But now it is a black ribbon. So we've even externalized it even more. We don't even tear our own clothes. But why are we tearing our clothes? So that we don't... It's instead of this. Instead of hurting yourself. Uh, In grief. uh, The same ritual. Just translated into a new way. So I I would say it is... The opposite. It's just like creating this ritual of half the Israelites on one and the other, which is kind of erasing what Shechem was, which is an altarpiece. So now I'm going to take a leap, but I think it's the right one. What is tefillin? On your hands, leather, and between your eyes that you put 
God between your eyes. What could you not do if you have to wear tefillin, which is not a permanent marker, but it is a reminder between your eyes? You couldn't put a big tattoo in the middle. I mean, it would be. It's like... uh, uh, in San Francisco, I had a guy with a mohawk that was like six feet high, and he was, you know, he wanted to wear a kippa. <laughs> and, and not six feet, okay, it was a foot high. You know, and it was his, uh, his brother's bar mitzvah. So he was joking around, and, you know, the kippa was kind of flowing on this. But it was in this moment that I was both, you know, I wanted him to be part of this experience, and women didn't wear kippahs necessarily, and therefore I said, this is making a mockery of the kippah. I don't want to make a mockery of you. But now we understand, I want you to understand to fill in differently, which is I don't mark myself for God other than circumcision, which actually is a taking, a, it's not a pro it's not a positive added thing. It is a cutting away to be sensitive to the realities of life. That's my theory, uh, my, our one theory of circumcision. That tefillin is a daily reminder of my uh, holy relationship to God and that I do not mark myself in this way. And so, Laot Ben Enechem, to put it as a sign. And have you seen in the Shema, you see the bumps come out, the Shaddai, it literally comes out so that it's an extension, a spiritual extension. I have. It is not permanent. Yes? So we had a conversation um, a while ago about the Tefillin being actually a misinterpretation of the commandment, which was to keep me between your eyes and on your hands, meaning to go forth, see the world in godly eyes, do godly work, and somehow it's kind of a little bit misinterpreted to Absolutely. So I can say, and this is the irony, is sometimes our holiest objects, just like even these holy... Shechem was a holy place. The Terebinth of Moreh was where Abraham prayed to God. But sometimes these trinkets become fetishes, and then our fetishes become the very thing. That's why you say destroy the Canaanite. Really what I'm saying is, look, you guys, you're wearing tefillin and watching uh, rated R films on an airplane. Like, what's going on here? This is not a magic trick. Do not form augury. I'm really trying to say, as I do with kids all the time, Cool, you want to tap? What are you going to put all across your back and your face? Oh, you like that. Oh, cool. What, what, what is that uh, whale symbol? Are you a whaler? Do you read Melville? Then they, okay, maybe, maybe that's a little much. But So that tefillin, so now, and this is what I think it's the powerful trans... It's not transubstantiation, it's transvaluation, is what Kaplan would always say about our, this denomination, denomination movement thought. How do I take the tefillin, which we're trying to, this is a theory, that tefillin at this moment was coming into its force so that we did not tattoo ourselves vis-a-vis ancestry worship. We are children of God and therefore organic. We then say, now, in transvaluation, I don't need these objects. It's about what I do. Look, it's not about seeing. 
Look, this is just fetish. Look at me, I'm so holy. Every titus, everybody looked at, oh, in Israel, I remember this, would look at my titus and see that I was frayed. My titus, you know, I wore titus when I was uh, younger. Uh, and they weren't perfectly organized. And I'm like, it's a fetish object to you. And yet, when I look at tzitzit and when I wear talit, I'm not going to be doing things that I would ordinarily do. Or in, in a profane way. Yes and yes. It's a very simple way to explain our children. Why not? Why do people don't get Yes. It's a very simple I, I didn't know I had submitted it all. So, the Holocaust is actually the reason. And I think, you know, I'll be very frank. How could you not bury someone who suffered through Auschwitz within our cemeteries? It was the last leg, the tattoo stuff rabbis and cemeteries had very little leverage over their people. And so this was a way to say, ah, if you do, then you can't. But we know how well that, I mean, it doesn't work so well. But I do think, like, I hear your grief, and I have friends who have tats of their mom, like M-O-M, their brother, and the date. But what do we do? What do we do? Look, do we visualize it? Do we self-mortify? No. What do we do? What do we do? And this is also very interesting in, in Reconstructionist theology. We say Kaddish. In where? Where? In the synagogue, but it can be anywhere, but can it be with alone? Can it be alone? With a minion. So we have reconstructed, we have transvalued not only the essence of life, but in life. And it is not a death ritual, it's a life ritual. And in fact, the Kaddish within a sanctuary, this is two. Why ten? Why the minion? Now, they're beautiful midrashim that say, because we want you to be in community, we want you to feel supported. But it's also a great way to get people to minion. This is the same problem as, uh, as, as Shiloh. This is the same problem as Josiah. And Moses says, how do we bring people together? How am I, okay, I will, I'm alone. I don't want to go to Minion. I feel horrible. I want to be miserable here. Why isn't anybody calling me, even though I haven't called anybody? So to centralize, there are reasons for centralization. There's a reason you're not studying alone. There's a reason you come together and that we say Kaddish and that we say these prayers and it's not magic it's to bring them within life but it's very life oriented and not death oriented yes David and then Judith David uh, and Mikey is part of this the tefillin uh, sort of the hidden genius of the Jews knowing that not that you wear it but you do it every day it's Ingrained becomes part of your being. If you just did it casually or whenever you wanted to, or on a holiday, it wouldn't have the same meaning. It wouldn't reinforce why you're behaving the way you're behaving. I find it very powerful. You wear tefillin in the morning and not at night. But but every day. Kolyo, that it's on my sign is a harm. And when you have the the strap markings. It's kind of, it's the henna tattoo. It's the way to do it without doing it. A henna is a temporary tattoo. It gives me that space, which is constructive. It is active. But in the end, I'm trying to wrap myself in God. And 
I don't know if it's ideal, but the silent meditation, I don't need sacrifice. This is where Rambam Maimonides walks you through from sacrifice to prayer to a visualization to meditation, and it's something you do every day. But didn't the Jews understand that that's how you change behavior? If you do it every day, you start to actually change how you I think to put the Pavlovian response, <laughs> yes, cognitive behavioral therapy of ritual action, but I will take it one step further. Look at all the visual things we don't do. This is just not how we roll. And, you know, you see uh, kids, you know, and our children, when they ask, can I wear that? I don't want to turn to God and say, well, the Torah prevents you from... I want to give them, why are you, for example, when I told my kid about sagging, do you guys know of like when you're low riding, you're sagging the pants, they go, they can get pretty low. <laughs> why, why, uh, what is the cultural antecedent to sagging? Anybody? And why don't they have belts? <laughs> Correct. That it's, a, that it's based on pain and suffering and that it is a prison reference. The kids didn't know. Mike, I mean, how did they know? So when I just scream, pull up your pants, so now, which is a prayer in the morning, that we, uh, that we make sure for life. And also to show the, ourselves and the world that our God is fully present without being visually objectified. I don't, and this is why I struggle, I really struggle with kippah. I don't need a bumper sticker. There's a reason that my circumcision is private. I'm not supposed to expose. If this was supposed to be a sign for the world to know, we'd walk around with chaps, or I don't know. We'd walk around very differently, right? This is not between... Sorry, that was a bad visual, but I'm just... I didn't just say that. It wasn't a bad visual from someone... So I want to say that kippah, this symbol, this marker, is... I mean, here's another irony of transvaluation. We are pro-life. We believe in life. Our diet... And our death rituals are two sides of this. We don't believe in magic. And we certainly don't believe in self-mortification as a means to the divine. What place does Lake Tefillin have in traditional Reconstructionism? And is it taught to our children? No. I'm just, no. Although I wear tefillin, I've, I've repurposed it. After 30 years of vegetarianism, that was one tough point. Number two, the magic-oriented. And three, if you look at the letters of Kaplan, this was one of those rituals that, we don't do, that it wasn't done every day. It's just not one of those things that he, he held true to. Yeah. Can you say more about magic? Because I remember growing up seeing about 50 pounds of salt thrown over <laughs> shoulders and can hurt. Don't touch the crack. Right. Zaminat. <laughs> Those superstitions. Right. Those superstitions. Yes. And it's it's rife. So we could talk about them, but this is to that point. We don't. 
Moses, don't look after poo poo poo. Knock knock wood. Don't do that. That's the wrong wood. It's confusing. And Empire Chicken, is it organic? No. Is it kosher? Why? Because a rabbi blessed it? Very complicated. But then it breaks down, and then I can't tell you that. I, you know, I've done this ritual before because we're going to turn to Tivashel Gidi Bachalevi Mo. Thank you for joining me on this little ritual. But I, I do, I, and I do want to return to tattooing, and I want to return, no, just to this. How we explain it to our children? Very simply. We don't do that because we believe in life and health, that we are co creators of this experience, so that if gluttony is part of my religious experience, I am not, that's not kosher. Gluttony, for example. Uh, how do I say that eating two bags of Takis is not kosher? You know, Takis are they're these ridiculously unhealthy kind of Cheeto-like things. Because you have filled yourself with fluff. It's inorganic. I'd rather him have a little kosher, some, a little food of health than filling yourself with air. That's idolatry. So, and do we have magic? We're rife with superstition. And yet, uh, I think the through line here in Deuteronomy is, let us be clear. You are allowed to worship in the centralized place, but you're going to be doing things in your own homes. Here's how you're going to do it. And this is what you should eat. Okay? So, to this organic process, and I really want to be... Uh, as clear as I can now. We're in the second section, but this was... Um, I don't know if I ever shared it with you guys. Uh, I failed three times my master's thesis. My first one was on premarital sex. They wouldn't accept it. My second one was a history of beards throughout the medieval period, Jewish beards, and I wanted to do a, an exhibit, and that, was, that failed. My third was, was, on, uh, was on kashrut, uh, and that they accepted the third one. They like that one because there are plenty of them. And basically, here we have for the third time, Lotivashel Gidi Bechalev Imo. And now we move forward. Uh, we're on chapter 14, verse 19, top of page 1127. All winged swarming things are impure. They may not be eaten. You may eat only pure winged creatures. You shall not eat anything that has died a natural death. Give it to the stranger in your community to eat. Or you may sell it to a foreigner. You are a people. Ki am kadosh ata Adonai Elohecha. Lo tevashel gidi bachalev imo. Do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. You shall set aside every year a tenth part of all of your sowing that's brought of the field. Tithes. Make sure that you tithe the portion of your field. Again, a radical reordering of what this verse meant to Israelites back in Exodus to Deuteronomy. So I'm just going to be as clear as I can. You don't have to turn now. Verse 2319 in Exodus 2319. Reshit bikorei admatecha tevi ladonai elohecha 
לא תבשל גידי בחלב אמו. The first fruits you should bring to the Lord your God. Make them pure. Do not seethe a calf in its mother's milk. And it's the same in Exodus later on. You don't have to go there now. I'm just telling you the first two contexts are about first fruits. What is essential about the first fruits of, the, of our produce is that it's organic. It's that we didn't force the thing to happen without its own cycle. Do you know you're not allowed to use fruits the first three years? Your first fruits, your first fruits of trees. You're not allowed, even though it gives you produce in that first year. Uh, my son calls this the pancake rule. <laughs> Don't eat the first pancake. It's always a little, you haven't figured it out yet, and you gotta, you gotta give it a couple of goes until you're really getting it right. So now, this is hopefully will open your ears and eyes a little bit. Don't boil a calf, baby, in its own mother's milk. Why would that be connected to bringing the first fruits of your Lord organically, naturally? Please do not boil a calf in its mother's milk. What cultic symbol could boiling a calf in its mother's milk be for agriculture within Israel? Think about it. What does a calf in its mother's milk symbolize? I'm seeing sacrificing the firstborn. Oh, well, it is, it's, a, it's a firstborn, but it's a type of sacrifice. It's a cultic ritual for sure and it's the ultimate cruelty also so it is cruel and, and that's what the rabbis try to talk about and cruelty and that's why kashrut is supposed to be painless and without cruelty take it outside cruelty for a second think about you're trying to uh, stimulate growth think about you're trying to catalyze this crop what are you going to do You're going to boil a calf in its mother's milk and you're going to pour it over these crops and pray to the gods of Baal that please give this concoction the quickest, most powerful way. And you're killing to, to make... Whatever it takes. It's going to be bigger, faster, stronger. This is why when we have mixing of seeds and when we have all of this agricultural law against inorganic produce... So Maimonides, and I'm going to read it for you explicitly, and it's, it's a, I'm just want, here as a note, modern sometimes are not modern, and medievalists are extremely modern. Maimonides here from the medieval period has a better eye to what was going on than, forgive me, Tige, an incredible scholar, I think he's wrong on this one. Okay. Maimonides' reason, now I'm in the second paragraph on the bottom, You shall not boil a calf in its mother's milk. Okay? Maimonides' reason, since this prohibition is mentioned twice in Exodus, right after pilgrimage festivals, notice, it's not just after pilgrimage festivals, it's after first fruits, it's after an agricultural ritual. Boiling a kid was probably a right practice at a pagan festival and prohibited. He's right. We found extant texts. Actually, after this was produced, Ugaritic text, 
within some of these altar sites that said, boil the calf and its mother's milk if you want your produce to grow faster. Yes? Are you basically saying that this was a cultic form of magic? Absolutely. The magic potion. Throwing salt over the shoulder, mm. but yeah, it is. I mean, it's the emulsifier. I mean, it makes things go faster. Uh, okay. This is not sufficient explanation. Really? Since the Torah doesn't oppose all pagan forms of worship, even sacrifice and prayer practiced by pagans, I think Maimonides was spot on. This was a pagan form that we have to distance ourselves from, that when you create fast food in this kind of mechanism, it is brutal and it is wrong. And when we see the stamp of Heckscherd, I should feel local, kosher, and organic, which we do not have. The association of the rule with the harvest festivals is best explained by the fact it seems to refer to something done at one of them. Yes, this ritual was done for agriculture, not for food. But by the time we get to Deuteronomy, 200, 300 years later, it was already seen as, of course, don't cook a calf. It's got to be eating. What else would it be? What else would it be? And there, meat was not eaten frequently, but it was part of festive meals. What I'm suggesting is meat was eaten more and more frequently. This is why they wanted sacrificial ritual to be in Jerusalem. And they wanted other people to have meat, but this was the way that they could eat it. And that's why the list of prohibited meats comes now. And we're not supposed to eat things that are just torn on the road. You're not allowed to eat a part of an animal from a whole. And you're not allowed to eat carnivorous birds. Why? To keep us organic. I, I think organic's the right, wrong word. I, I, I know that it's not right. The text specifies only boiling the flesh of a kid in its mother's milk. Halakha, exegesis, meaning interpretation, is more broadly cooking or eating. Uncleus, uh, it's in the first century. Don't eat the cook, uh, the calf, in its own mother's milk. Eating. But it's not just a kid in its mother's milk. It's don't eat milk and meat. And then another fence around it, don't eat chicken and cheese. Even Yossi HaGalili says, and this is where I really want to take this last bit of the conversation, what chicken is nursing his, his, his child? <laughs> Not at all. So in the Galilee, Yossi HaGalili would eat a chicken parm. I've, I've said this here before, a chicken parmesan, chicken and cheese. By the way, is cheese milk? Well, that depends. It is dairy, but it's used, it's a different form. Finally, chicken was upgraded in early, early rabbinic tradition in order for everybody to share chicken at dinner. So that whether you're rich or you're poor, you could have chicken because not everybody could have meat. That's how we transform from the temple to the table. But I want to say this. So here's how I think the logic goes within Judaism. Traditionally, my Zaidi would have separate plates and separate bowls. I'm not going to do that. But I am vegetarian, and I'm super kosher, and I'm super local. 
Then it goes to this next level of how ridiculous is it that I can't eat a chicken and cheese, so I'm going to eat chicken out. I just don't eat on inorganic things. But we, I think, have taken one step too far. So this is, I'm, I would just want to say, the difference between a reform, informed choice, and reconstructionist. We owe it to ourselves to transvalue what the organic nature of this prohibition is and the first fruits that we bring into some of the eco-kashrut questions, some of the ways that we see our food chains and our supplies, even the vessels that I bring my children their lunches each and every day. I feel like I am sinning right now with the number of plastic bags I send every day. Yes? I'm still disturbed on page 1127 where you talked about you shall not eat anything that has died a natural death. Give it to the stranger in your community or you may sell it to a foreigner. That seems to go so much against everything we've been taught about embracing the stranger and the foreigner. Well. And, and watching out for them. Isn't that not, you could also read it as this is meat. But on the other hand, the reason we don't eat it is because we're not sure what it died of, and it might be dangerous. Or it's that I have to take proactive life in my hands when I slaughter something, an animal for ritual sake of eating, that that is something I want to be conscious of and proactive. And if I see that animal by the road by saying, don't just keep walking by, don't waste it. Give it to the stranger and the poor. I'm just saying, Elaine, you could read it both ways. Or sell it. It also says, or sell it to a foreigner. Because they were doing that. Wow. Well, I, you see it as a, a moment of cruelty. I, I don't know. I would do other people? I, I, think, I, I think jumping to conclusions, you know, it, it may have died in many different ways and made it perfectly good to eat. So, yeah, it's just that we haven't taken control. It may be. Maybe. Right. You could read it two ways. And I see the ritualization of, uh, if anybody's been to kosher slaughter, it's difficult and it's powerful, but it makes you respect what you're about to eat. Well, I think what Elena's concerned about that concerns me, too, is the not caring about the stranger or the foreigner. I mean, the same is true with loans. You can loan money to a foreigner and collect interest, but not to a Jew. You can't collect interest from a Jew. So it's it's a separating. And a I, I think you can, I think that's a read, and I also think creating the system where you are providing food for other for other people is a possible read too. But the reason we don't we don't eat it is because we're fearful of not knowing the way it died and if it had a disease or something. Perhaps. I see. I, perhaps. It might have been hit in the head with a rock, and you don't know it died, but you didn't take control. It wasn't done your way. So you know that it's a perfectly healthy thing to eat, but you haven't taken the activity of making it a part of your ritual. So why waste it if it got hit in the head with a rock? You're assuming it, it, it got hit by a cart. We don't know. But Mike, isn't it more that this is the way we separate ourselves from other tribes as opposed to the health issues and this is not meaning we're chosen? This is just see there we're going down that track. I don't know. I don't know. I wanna be this is why I call it the dirty grilled cheese theory. 
I'll eat a dirty grilled cheese anywhere. It's not ideal. I'd rather there not be bacon bits on the grill when I'm going to the place. But I want to be able to eat with people. And this is where chosen comes in. I do have a unique way and I do have a unique people and I don't feel holier than non-Jews distinct distinguished so this is lining on this is really where reconstructionist I think both to to fill in and to uh, this question of organic inorganic eating there's a strong feeling that the reason kashrut was established later on with the rabbis and all the particulars was to keep Jews from eating with other people because of the fear of intermarriage. If you uh, don't eat with people, you don't socialize with them. And I'm saying it's much earlier than the rabbis, and I'm also saying we can posit. How do you positively identify with some of these rituals that were clearly meant just in the way you're saying, to separate us, to make us holy. I worked very hard with my kids to say, look, that's just not what we do. I know pork ramen sounds awesome, but you can smell it, but that's just not what we do. That's not how we roll. I'm eating amongst, I'm sitting there. I'm not asking for the only kosher restaurant in Tokyo, for example. I think it's really important that every time it talks about the milk meat, it says, you shall not boil a kid in his mother's milk. It never says, you shall not boil a kid in milk. Because that's just a recipe. This is a humanitarian statement by saying mother's milk. Because it really puts that together. And I guess what I'm suggesting cultically is boiling a kid in its own mother's milk was a catalyst. It was a kind of fertilizer that seemed the most fertile possible. What could be more fertile than its own juices and its mom? And that cultically was agricultural. We shifted into diet, as you see, all of these prohibitive foods. So Elena, positively, what I want to get to is a place where my food is both kosher, it is shared with others. And I can say, you know, uh, Kosher Nation, a very interesting book, Halal Muslims trust kashrut. They trust these stamps. Kosher means, as a word, what does it mean, kosher, in our language? Kosher means right, good, skilled, wise. It's not there right now. Right, right now, I find we're at a crisis of kashrut. And this, to be able to give it to the foreigner, certainly Deuteronomy, I just really want to be clear about this, is so concerned with the stranger and the foreigner again and again. While holding, we don't want to form idolatrous practices. So how do we hold that in our hands? I'm asking us to take that third step from this is what they used to do, this is what we do now. How do we find ways in our morning rituals that are to life and health, but also our food rituals that are both kosher, that represent who we are as a community, that bring us together so that it's a blessing and certainly not something we feel alienates and separates, which I would say is a klala, is a curse. That's what is the crisis right now in Kashrut? Oh, that's a, that's a long well, subject. I, I yeah. get back to what you said about it's okay to boil meat in milk. So how can that be okay to mix dairy with I'm not food. saying it's okay. I'm saying it, it goes. But it takes, the from, milk. It takes it from a recipe to a humanitarian statement. Yeah, because it's the mother. So, do you think it was okay to boil the kid 
No. And someone else's? It was a particular, I'm, I'm saying explicitly, we have this ritual, an Ugaritic agricultural ritual that says, this is what you do. If you want your crops to grow, pray to Baal, take this kid, put it in some mother's milk. That's why he jumped, that's why early as the first century, he says, don't eat a, don't eat a calf with his mom. And then it turned into, don't separate milk and meat, issues of death versus issues of life. But all of that is not the original intent of this agriculture. But that doesn't mean now, yay, I go and eat a cheeseburger. 